You're listening to SBS on the Money with Ricardo Gonsalves. It's your daily 10-minute business and finance news wrap for this Friday, the 19th of January, 2024. On Market Day, we'll speak with Marja Beans-Aman from ANZ. But first, a lack of diversity around boardroom tables of large Australian companies may be hindering the nation's economic opportunities. Analysis by executive search organisation Blenheim Partners has found of Australia's top 300 listed companies, only 19 are led by non-Caucasian CEOs, and it's worse for those in the role of chair with just eight people. For more, I spoke with Gregory Robinson, Managing Partner at Blenheim Partners. Greg, first of all, how would you describe the level of boardroom diversity in Australia? Well, firstly, thanks, Ricardo, for having me on the uh, the show this evening. Um, I think some people will say it's fairly light. If we look at the the stats in chairs at the moment, the ASX 300, we just recently put out a report, which comes in at 3%. Last year was 4%. Six years ago, Ricardo, it was 2%. So I'm using the definition of non-Caucasian slash Americans, we use the definition ethnicity. It, it, it's light on. But however, I think we're also going to be careful how the definition of what diversity actually means. And I think in Australia it can be a little bit too narrow, nine times out of 10. I think it does incorporate gender, ethnicity, but also experiences, um, working experiences, industries over and above. So I think we just got to be a little bit more broad. It's easy to go narrow, but sometimes, sometimes I think we just lose a bit of the angle on the actual debate around diversity. Since you mentioned definitions, and I think that's quite important. So when you talk about non-Caucasian background in this report, Mm. what exactly does that mean? I'm basically saying non-Anglo-Saxon or non-white pale male or female in that regard, trying to look incorporate the broader community um, and the ethnicity behind that. Okay, so as you mentioned, 3% of chairs on ASX 300 companies are of non-Caucasian background. Why do you think these numbers are so low? It's a really tricky one. You think about the pool that we've got to to leverage on. Um, if we look at, say, gender diversity, chairs and female at the moment at 9%. We rolled that back, say, six years ago using the same sort of benchmark. It was 5%, so almost doubled. But yet in non-Caucasian or ethnicity, as we're talking about, it hasn't moved the dial at all. So I think there's some work to do. It's like the pool for gender we're going to have to develop at the sea level somewhat more. So maybe there's some arguments around that. In that case, Ricardo, bringing people through from the ethnicity background to take senior leadership roles, chief executive, COO, um, CFO type roles a little bit more. But it, it does ponder, compared to the United States, well, the stats are significantly higher um, per capita. There is some real gaps here. And, you know, the opportunity for ethnicity, when you're thinking about not just ethnicity, but skill sets, knowledge. We're moving to a global market. Now, traditionally, Australia, you know, we focused on the domestic play. Can't do that anymore. So corporates have got to expand and you've got to explore um, Asia, North America, Middle East, Europe, et cetera, Africa. And if we don't have that sort of content sitting in the boardroom or at least an understanding of it, surely we're penalising ourselves somewhat. So as an executive search firm, right, um, mm-hmm. is it an issue of supply? You don't have the talent there, or do you think there is a bit of conscious bias issues as well there? No, I don't think it's conscious bias in that sense. Um, I think, again, it goes back to my original definition, Ricardo. It's I want to get a brief. I don't necessarily get a brief saying I necessarily want a female or I want someone with an eth- ethnic background. I'd like someone who has the skill set. So 
if I was working for an organisation which had expansion plans to move into Asia, would, wouldn't it be outstanding to have someone who's got a pedigree, comes from Asia, knows the market, has relationships, but also has the skill sets of, of that particular industry or other adjacency industries, which would be a far more powerful concept. Sometimes you just can't get that in one package, Ricardo. Hence the reason why I think there's some development opportunities here for the ethnicity numbers to move up. Yeah, so let's expand on that a bit more. How do you think we fix it? Education is always the first part to start with. But if you look at the ethnicity background, most people, most families support their children and encourage their children to be educated. There's no doubt about that. Whether they've had the appeal to move into business and build a business career enough, that's got to be looked at somewhat more. The challenge is actually this, the pool is short at the top level. I, I can't, we can't engage and put someone into a boardroom if they don't have all round experience, Ricardo. And there must be a shortage across the ASX 300, we're using that as a stat, at the executive level, which needs to be developed somewhat more. So it needs to be encouraged. That development then, is is that all about education and getting more people in from the ground up? It's about getting people in from the ground up. It's also about bringing people in from offshore. You can do both. All right, then, and above that, you've got to make it a worthwhile opportunity as well, right? So it's got to be an exciting. And have companies thought long and hard these days about you know, there the, are the programs to bring people from the graduate to take them to the top level. That that's somewhat lost its um, focus for the last last number of years. We've come through COVID. I don't think there's been enough enough genuine interest in it. Also, I don't think companies have thought long and hard enough about the bigger opportunities for the offshore markets. And if you're going to bring that ethnicity group of individuals through who come from a background that have relationships offshore, understand the nuances, the cultures, surely that's powerful. And if we're looking at Australia to compete on the world stage, particularly digital markets, et cetera, you've got to think, Ricardo, here's an opportunity and a half. So do you think it's fair to say Australia's missing out on um, economic opportunities as a result? I think Australia should step it up somewhat and be smarter about it. If we're going to be competing on the world stage, which we have to be. We just can't keep relying on the same old industries, i.e. the miners, to do the right thing for us. We've got to be a smart country, and smart means using capability, and capability comes to people. And if we're going to build and grow those markets, it would be good to have people from that different traditions and nuances, as you've rightly stated. Two final questions. How do you make sure, though, that when it comes to filling these positions and getting greater diversity, that it's not just a tick box um, exercise? So I challenge the client to understand what the brief is, where they want to take this role, and the broader skill set outside of that. I think if you take and point someone from a gender perspective only or you appoint someone from an ethnicity point only, you probably are setting them up for failure as opposed to success. And at the end of the day, I think my, my aim to work with my client is to ensure that that candidate and that client both succeed. And you're doing the wrong thing by just focusing on just one particular area. Um, is there anything that companies, listed companies are doing right when it comes to boardroom diversity? I think they are taking a little bit more consideration. I think, however, I think there seems to be a, a subtle change. You know, we've seen, for example, a greater a development in the area of technology in the boardrooms. That was, I think we're way behind in that. Um, that's, that's moving. I think now there's a recognition that if we are going to compete, we're going to have to compete on the world stage. And I think you've got to have some some individuals and whether you need to import them, Ricardo, in the short term to educate that board, to see the value of that, those relationships, to see the way they think differently um, and maximise their skill sets. Maybe that might be the first part as we bring through people through. But I just think we're sitting in as a country, which is an outstanding pedigree, 
and culture, ethnicity, I think we've got a tremendous asset which we're just not exploiting enough at the moment. That is Gregory Robinson there from Blenheim Partners. Now, Market Day on the SBS On The Money podcast. Quick look at the Australian share market now, which rose today by 1%. The S&P ASX 200 at 7,421. That's a spike calls for interest rate rises in Australia from one major international fund. For more, I spoke with Marjabeen Zaman from ANZ. Marjabeen, can we start firstly by talking about local interest rates? NAB yesterday uh, cancelled its rate rise call from the RBA. Today, Deutsche Bank did the same thing. But we heard from the International Monetary Fund overnight, which warned of the potential need for further monetary tightening to get inflation to hit the RBA's target uh, by the end of 2025. This goes against everything we're hearing from experts in the market at the moment. What do you think? Look, there are three things that we are looking at. Uh, The first being the RBA's December uh, meeting, the Q3 GDP data, which came out, and of course, uh, the most recent labor market data, all of which point to a softening in activity. And this really supports the case uh, for the RBA to keep cash rate on hold at its February meeting at 4.35%. Now, yesterday, we had labor market data, which really points to a decrease in full-time employment, which then further points to a slowing job market. Uh, we do think the unemployment rate is likely to increase from here. But, you know, we, given that we will have declines in participation rate, it's, uh, it will likely prevent a rapid increase, uh, in, in the unemployment rate. Um, hours worked, uh, declined also sharply in December. So all of these really point to a slowing jobs market, points to the fact that interest, higher interest rates are impacting the household and the businesses. Looking ahead, we do have Q4 CPI at the end of the month. Uh, we expect headline CPI uh, to slow sharply to a two-year low of 4.3%. On the trimmed mean inflation, we expect forecast to be at 4.4% year-on-year. This would be the lowest quarterly result since Q3 2021. So overall, um, taking into account this this uh, decline uh, uh, in expectations and in the CPI, uh, we expect the RBA to stay on hold at the upcoming meeting. One thing to note, though, services inflation is still in watch, uh, and we think services inflation will continue to be strong in Q4. Uh, with six-month annualized rates to be pretty high. And so this suggests that while, you know, rate hikes are not fully off the table, uh, our base case does remain that cash rate has peaked at 4.35 and the next move down is likely down in late 2024. Okay, so that's the local market. Um, What about globally? Because the market seems to have overshot expectations as to how fast global central banks may cut interest rates. What's your take? Look, it's really, this year's really been a push and pull between market expectations and what actual central banks are actually saying. Um, you know, we will continue to see, I mean, despite inflation coming off in the US or in Europe uh, at a pretty quick pace, uh, the central banks have actually been trying to push back as they don't want to loosen financial conditions or expectations too early because they're afraid that inflation will come up again, uh, especially the core sticky side of things. We think that the expectation for a March hike in the U.S. is a little bit overdone, uh, and we expect Fed speakers to continue to push back until we have further inflation and job data prints. So overall, our expectation is that the Federal Reserve will cut interest rates in Q3, and will cut by 100 basis points in 2024, and ECB will likely cut rates in springtime in the Northern Hemisphere as well. 
So what does this all mean for currencies? We've seen the Australian dollar down from about 68 and a half US cents at the beginning of the year to about 65 and a half. How much has that got to do with, I guess, global interest rates, that shift in sentiment and and, and a bit of China as well? Yeah, you know, I think last last year in December, we saw that huge uh, rally in the Aussie up to that 68 and above. And really that's on the back of three things. Uh, and that's on the U.S. dollar side of things. I mean, of the Federal Reserve, they pivoted in favor of rate cuts by adjusting their forecast to factor in about 75 basis points of rate cuts in 2024. So the market reacted uh, by selling the U.S. Uh, furthermore, locally, you know, we saw iron ore prices rally significantly because on a seasonal basis, China tends to build up its stockpiles ahead of Chinese New Year, which happens to be in February. So we saw uh, iron ore prices rally in December. Uh, with support of the Aussie upside. And seasonally, December tends to be a positive month for the Aussie dollar and also risk sentiment because we see a rally or a Santa Claus rally in risk assets and currencies as well. Now, coming to January now, we have seen a bit of a correction of that. Some of this move is reversing uh, on the back of a few points. Uh, number one, we had a moderating monthly CPI here in Australia um, which then further firmed up expectations of no rate hikes coming up ahead, uh, which has dampened a little bit of that Aussie dollar side of things. And iron ore prices have also retreated. Now, we forecast um, the Aussie dollar to be at 68 at the end of Q1 and at 70 at year end. That's Marja Beeson's man there from ANZ. And the SBS on the Money podcast will take a bit of a break over the next couple of weeks and will return in full on the 5th of February. This SBS On The Money podcast is provided for informational purposes only. The content on this podcast should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decisions.